Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Part 1. Age of Shipwreck, 1120-1154 It was as if Christ and his saints were asleep. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle The White Ship The prince was drunk, so too were the crew and passengers of the ship he had borrowed. On the evening of November 25, 1120, nearly two hundred young and beautiful members of England's and Normandy's elite families were enjoying themselves aboard a magnificent white longship that bobbed gently to the hum of laughter in a crowded harbour at Barfleur in Normandy. A seventy-mile voyage lay ahead across the choppy late-autumn waters of the Channel, but with the ship moored at the edge of the busy port town, barrels of wine were rolled aboard, and all were invited to indulge. The prince was William the Etheling. He was the only legitimate son of Henry I, King of England and Duke of Normandy, and Matilda of Scotland, the literate, capable queen descended from the line of Wessex kings who had ruled England before the Norman conquest. His first name, William, was in honour of his grandfather, William the Conqueror. His sobriquet, Etheling, was a traditional Anglo-Saxon title for the heir to the throne. William was a privileged, sociable young man, who conformed to the time-honoured stereotype of the adored, spoiled eldest son. One Norman chronicler observed him, dressed in silken garments stitched with gold, surrounded by a crowd of household attendants and guards, and gleaming in an almost heavenly glory. He was pandered to on all sides with excessive reverence, and was therefore prone to fits of immoderate arrogance. William was surrounded by a large group of other noble youths. They included his half-brother and half-sister, Richard of Lincoln and Matilda, Countess of Perche, both bastard children from a brood of twenty-four fathered by the remarkably virile King Henry. William's cousin, Stephen of Blois, who was also a grandson of William the Conqueror. Richard, the twenty-six-year-old Earl of Chester, and his wife, Maud. Geoffrey Rydell, an English judge. The prince's tutor, Othver and numerous other cousins, friends, and royal officials. Together they made up a golden generation of the Anglo-Norman nobility. It was only right that they travelled in style. The white ship belonged to Thomas Fitzstephen, whose grandfather Erard had contributed a longship to William the Conqueror's invasion fleet. Fitzstephen had petitioned the king for the honour of carrying the royal party safely back from Barfleur to the south coast of England. Henry had honoured him with the passage of the prince's party, but with this duty came a warning. I entrust to you my sons William and Richard, whom I love as my own life. William was a precious charge indeed. He was seventeen years old, and already a rich and successful young man. He had been married in 1119 to Matilda, daughter of Fulk V, Count of Anjou, and future King of Jerusalem. It was a union designed to overturn generations of animosity between the Normans and Angevins, as the natives of Anjou, a small but important province on the Lower Loire, were known. 
Following the wedding, William had accompanied his father around Normandy for a year, learning the art of kingship as Henry thrashed out what the chronicler William of Malmesbury described as a brilliant and carefully concerted peace with Louis the Sixth, the fat, the sly, porcine king of France. It was intended as an education in the highest arts of kingship, and it had been deemed effective. William had lately been described as Rex Designatus, King Designate, in official documents, marking his graduation toward the position of co-king alongside his father. The highest point of William's young life had come just a few weeks earlier, when he had knelt before the corpulent Louis to pay homage as the new Duke of Normandy. This semi-sacred ceremony acknowledged the fact that Henry had turned over the dukedom to his son— it recognized William as one of Europe's leading political figures, and marked the end of his journey to manhood. A new wife, a new duchy, and the unstoppable ascent to kingship before him. These were good reasons to celebrate, and that was precisely what William was doing. As the thin November afternoon gave way to a clear, chilly night, the white ship stayed moored in Barfleur, and the wine flowed freely. The white ship was a large vessel, capable of carrying several hundred passengers, along with a crew of fifty and a cargo of treasure. The Norman historian Orderic Vitalis called it excellently fitted out and ready for royal service. It was long and deep, decorated with ornate carvings at prow and stern, and driven by a large central mast and square sail, with oar-holes along both sides. The rudder, or steer-board, was on the right-hand side of the vessel rather than in the centre, so the onus on the captain was to be well aware of local maritime geography. Steering was blind to the port side. A fair wind was blowing up from the south, and it promised a rapid crossing to England. The crew and passengers bade the king's vessel farewell sometime in the evening. They were expected to follow shortly behind— but the drinking on board the white ship was entertaining enough to keep them anchored long past dark. When priests arrived to bless the vessel with holy water before her departure, they were waved away with jeers and spirited laughter. As the party ran on, a certain amount of bragging began. The white ship contained little luggage and was equipped with fifty oarsmen. The inebriated captain boasted that his ship, with square sail billowing and oars pulling hard, was so fast that even with the disadvantage of having conceded a head start to King Henry's ship, they could still be in England before the king. A few on board started to worry that sailing at high speed with a well-lubricated crew was not the safest way to travel to England, and it was with the excuse of a stomach upset that William's cousin Stephen of Blois excused himself from the party. He left the white ship to find another vessel to take him home. Dismayed at the wild and headstrong behaviour of the royal party and crew, a couple of others joined him. But despite the queasy defectors, the drunken sailors eventually saw their way to preparing the ship for departure. Around midnight on a clear night lit by a new moon, the white ship weighed anchor and set off for England. She flew swifter than the winged arrow, sweeping the rippling surface of the deep, wrote William of Malmesbury but the ship did not fly far. Whether it was the effects of the celebrations on board, a simple navigational error, or the wrath of the Almighty at seeing his holy water declined, within minutes of leaving shore the white ship crashed into a sharp rocky outcrop which is still visible today at the mouth of the harbour. The collision punched a fatal hole in the wooden prow of the ship. The impact threw splintered timber into the sea, freezing water began to pour in. The immediate priority of all on board was to save William. As the crew attempted to bail water out of the white ship, a lifeboat was put over the side. William clambered aboard together with a few companions and oarsmen to return him to the safety of Barfleur. It must have been a terrifying scene— the roar of a drunken crew thrashing to bail out the stricken vessel, combining with the screams of passengers hurled into the water by the violence of the impact. The fine clothes of many of the noblemen and women would have grown unmanageably heavy when soaked with sea-water, making it impossible to swim for safety or even to tread water. The waves echoed with the cries of the drowning.' 
As his tiny boat turned for the harbour, William picked out among the panicked voices the screams of his elder half-sister Matilda. She was crying for her life, certain to drown in the cold and the blackness. The thought was more than William could bear. He commanded the men on his skiff to turn back and rescue her. It was a fatal decision. The Countess was not drowning alone. As the lifeboat approached her, it was spotted by other passengers who were floundering in the icy waters. There was a mass scramble to clamber to safety aboard. The result was that the skiff, too, capsized and sank. Matilda was not saved, and neither now was William the Etheling, Duke of Normandy, and King-designate of England. As the chronicler Henry of Huntingdon put it, Instead of wearing a crown of gold, his head was broken open by the rocks of the sea. Only one man survived the wreck of the white ship, a butcher from Rouen, who had boarded the ship at Barfleur to collect payment for debts, and been carried off to sea by the revellers. When the ship went down, he wrapped himself in ram-skins for warmth, and clung to wrecked timber during the night. He staggered, drenched back to shore in the morning to tell his story. Later on, the few bodies that were ever recovered began to wash up with the tide. King Henry's ship, captained by sober men and sailed with care and attention, reached his kingdom unscathed, and the king and his household busied themselves preparing for the Christmas celebrations. When the awful word of the catastrophe in Barfleur reached the court, it was greeted with dumbstruck horror. Henry was kept in ignorance at first. Magnates and officials alike were terrified at the thought of telling the king that three of his children, including his beloved heir, were what William of Malmesbury called food for the monsters of the deep. Eventually a small boy was sent to Henry to deliver the news. He threw himself before the king's feet and wept as he recounted the tragic news. According to Orderic Vitalis, Henry fell to the ground, overcome with anguish. It was said that he never smiled again. The sinking of the white ship was not just a personal tragedy for Henry I, it was a political catastrophe for the Norman dynasty. In the words of Henry of Huntingdon, William's certain hope of reigning in the future was greater than his father's actual possession of the kingdom. Through William the Etheling's marriage, Normandy had been brought to peace with Anjou. Through his homage to Louis VI, the whole Anglo-Norman realm was at peace with France. All of Henry's plans and efforts to secure his lands and legacy had rested on the survival of his son. Now it was all in vain. The death of William the Etheling and the fortuitous survival of his cousin Stephen of Blois would come to throw the whole of Western European politics into disarray for three decades. Hunt for an heir. Henry I was, as one contemporary chronicler put it, the man against whom no one could prevail except God himself. The fourth son of William the Conqueror, he enjoyed an exceptionally long, peaceful, and prosperous reign of thirty-five years, in which royal authority in England reached new heights. After his father's death in 1087, England and Normandy had been split apart. Henry ruthlessly reunited them. After snatching the English crown following his brother William Rufus's death in 1100, he defeated another elder brother, Robert Curthose, at the Battle of Tashbray in 1106 to seize control of Normandy, and thereafter kept Robert imprisoned for nearly three decades at Cardiff Castle. Henry encouraged the intermingling of an Anglo-Norman aristocracy, whose culture and landholdings straddled the Channel. Meanwhile, in Queen Matilda, he chose a wife who would bring the Norman and Saxon bloodlines together to heal the wounds of the conquest. Henry was a great lawgiver and administrator. He created a sophisticated system of Anglo-Norman government, a vast improvement on anything known under the rule of his father, William the Conqueror, or his brother, William Rufus. He granted the English barons a charter of liberties, which celebrated the laws of the last Saxon king, Edward the Confessor, guaranteed baronial rights, and set out some limits to royal power. 
He sent royal judges into the English shires on large judicial circuits, investigating crimes, abuses, and corruption, and strengthening the crown's role in local government. He reformed the royal treasury, setting up an exchequer to make accounts twice a year, and drawing together the accounting systems of England and Normandy under a single treasurer. And he did much to secure Normandy's position on the continent. Taken together, Henry's government was one of the most sophisticated bureaucratic machines in Europe since the Roman era. In his time, said the Anglo-Saxon chronicle, no man dared do wrong against another. He made peace for man and beast. Yet for all of King Henry I's great triumphs, he failed in one vital task. He never managed to secure the future. After William the Etheling's tragic death, Henry I tried hard to father another legitimate son on whom he could settle his lands and titles. Queen Matilda had died in 1118, so in 1121 he married a nubile teenager, Adeliza of Louvain. Surprisingly, for a man who had sired twenty-two bastard children, he was unable to impregnate his new wife. That left Henry with one rather desperate option. Given that he could not groom as king any of his bastard sons, such as the extremely capable eldest Robert Earl of Gloucester, he decided that he would appoint as his heir his only other legitimate child, the Empress Matilda. When her younger brother died on the white ship, Matilda was eighteen years old. She had been living in Germany for a decade, having been sent at the age of eight to marry Henry V, King of the Germans and Holy Roman Emperor, whose power reached from Germany to Tuscany. She had grown up in utmost splendour in the cities and palaces of Central Europe, where she tasted the very heights of political power. Matilda served as a regent when her husband was absent, stretched constantly between his large domains. She had twice worn her imperial crown at great ceremonial occasions in Rome, and as one of the most important women in Europe, she kept the company of the most famous and influential figures of her age. In 1125, however, the emperor died unexpectedly. Matilda had borne no children, so her political role in Germany was cut short. Henry I brought her straight back to England, and told her of his new plan for the kingdom. She arrived with her title of Empress and her favourite precious relic, the preserved hand of St. James, a souvenir from the imperial chapel. At the Christmas court of 1126, Matilda sat beside her father, as his loyal barons came to swear an oath of allegiance to her as heir to the kingdom and duchy. This was an extraordinary measure, and both Henry and his barons realised it. The precedents for female rule in the twelfth century were very weak. Kingship was the role of a soldier, a judge, and a lawgiver. All these roles in the Middle Ages were inescapably male. A king asked a lot when he extracted from his people a promise that they would consent to be ruled by his daughter. Unfortunately, Henry had little other choice. It was clear that Matilda would need a new husband to bolster her claim to succession. As he had with William the Etheling, Henry now sought an alliance with the Counts of Anjou. He contacted Fulk V and negotiated a marriage alliance between Matilda and Fulk's eldest son, Geoffrey. On June 17, 1128, the couple was married in the Norman Angevin border town of Le Mans. The Empress Matilda was twenty-six years old, her groom was fifteen. John of Marmoutier recorded that the marriage was celebrated for three weeks without a break, and when it was over, no one left without a gift. On his wedding day, Geoffrey of Anjou was a tall, bumptious teenager with ginger hair, a seemingly inexhaustible energy, and a flair for showmanship. His fair-skinned good looks earned him the sobriquet Le Belle. Tradition also has it that he liked to wear a sprig of bright yellow broom-blossom, planta genista in Latin, in his hair, which earned him another nickname, Geoffrey Plantagenet. John of Marmoutier later described him as admirable and likable. He excelled at arguing, and was unusually skilled at warfare. A week before his marriage he had been knighted by Henry I in Rouen. 
He was dressed in linen and purple, wearing double-mail armour with gold spurs, a shield covered in gold motifs of lions, and a sword reputedly forged by the mythical Norse blacksmith Wayland the Smith. As soon as the marriage was completed, Geoffrey became Count of Anjou in his own right, as Fulk V resigned the title and left for the East to become King of Jerusalem. Despite all this, Matilda was underwhelmed. Geoffrey was eleven years her junior, and Normans saw Angevins barbarians who murdered priests, desecrated churches, and had appalling table manners. A legend held that they were descended from Satan's daughter Melusine, who had married an Angevin count of old. She had revealed herself as a devil when forced to witness the mass, flown out of a church window, and disappeared forever, but her fiendish blood still bubbled in the veins of her descendants. If this was legend from the distant ages, there was evidence closer to hand that the Angevin bloodline was dangerous. Geoffrey's great-grandfather Fulk III, the Black, was notorious for his violence. He was said to have had his first wife burned at the stake in her wedding dress, on discovery of her adultery with a goat-herd, and his reputation as a perverted rapist and plunderer stretched from the shores of the Atlantic to the Holy Land. Notwithstanding this chequered ancestry, Geoffrey Plantagenet had seemed to Henry I a necessary husband for his imperial daughter. The couple did not get along, but that was hardly the point. They argued and separated for the first years of their marriage, then settled down under Henry I's guidance, and did their political duty. On March the 5th, 1133, at Le Mans, Matilda gave birth to their first son. The couple named him Henry, after the king whose crown it was intended that he should inherit. The infant was baptized on Easter Saturday in Le Mans Cathedral, and placed under the protection of St. Julian. But it would take more than a saint's protection to provide for the child's future. Within two years, everything that Henry I hoped for in his grandson would be cast into chaos and doubt. The Shipwreck In the last week of November 1135, Henry I and his entourage arrived at Lyon-la-Forêt in Upper Normandy. The castle and the forest surrounding it had been a regular haunt of the Norman dukes for two centuries, and Henry arrived late on a Monday evening with the intention of enjoying himself the next day as his ancestors had in the thrill of the hunt. Even at the age of sixty-eight the king remained vigorous and strong. During the night he fell ill, and his condition worsened fast. By the end of the week it was apparent that the illness was extremely grave. According to a letter from the Archbishop of Rouen, Henry confessed his sins, beat his breast, and set aside his animosities. On Sunday, December the 1st, after three days of absolution, prayer, and almsgiving, the archbishop anointed Henry with holy oil, whereupon the king expired. Although many chroniclers noted the piety with which Henry I died, one of them, Henry of Huntingdon, recorded some gruesome details of the king's immediate afterlife. The royal corpse was brought to Rouen, and there his entrails, brain, and eyes were buried together. Then the body was cut all over with knives and copiously sprinkled with salt and wrapped in ox-hides to stop the strong pervasive stench which was already causing the deaths of those who watched over it. It even killed the man who had been hired for a great fee to cut off the head with an axe and extract the stinking brain, although he had wrapped his face in linen cloths. If this was the physical reality of Henry I's death, the political fallout was far worse, for even as Henry's embalmed corpse was transported to England for burial at Reading Abbey, a constitutional crisis that was to last for nearly two decades was brewing. This period is usually known as the Anarchy, but those who lived through it preferred to call it the Shipwreck. Henry's failure to provide for an adult male successor left the Anglo-Norman realm contested. Three times since his daughter Matilda's return from Germany, in 1126, 1131, and 1133, Henry I had caused his barons to swear that they would be loyal to her, but from the moment the old king died, his subjects began to abandon their promises. 
In December 1135, Matilda's cousin Stephen of Blois was in Boulogne, the seat of his wife's family. As soon as he learned of his uncle's death, he crossed directly to England, and went straight to London, where he had himself proclaimed king. Then, on December 22nd, he went to Winchester, where he seized the royal treasury and had himself anointed by the Archbishop of Canterbury. He moved quickly to secure the support of the Anglo-Norman magnates on both sides of the Channel. With little hesitation or delay, they threw themselves behind him. The Empress Matilda, Geoffrey Plantagenet, and their young family were suddenly disinherited. The speed with which the barons and bishops of England and Normandy abandoned Matilda's claim speaks volumes about the nature of kingship in the twelfth century. Female rule had precedence. Three decades earlier, Mathilde of Tuscany, Countess of Canossa, had ruled in her own right in northern Italy, but they were scarce and unconvincing. Rumours flew around that Henry on his deathbed had absolved his barons from their oaths of allegiance to his daughter. They found willing ears. The prospect of being ruled by a woman was not an appealing one. There was at that time a strong elective element to kingship. Without it, Henry I would never have been king. He had grabbed England and Normandy in 1100 and 1106 respectively, despite having an elder brother, Robert Curthose, with a superior claim in blood. Now history repeated itself. Stephen had no real claim under primogeniture to be king. For one thing, he had an elder brother, Theobald of Blois, whose blood claim was stronger than his. Yet as the son of William the Conqueror's daughter Adela, he was a credible candidate. He had been raised at Henry I's court with the king's sons, and held an exalted position among the rest of the Anglo-Norman barons. He had narrowly avoided death alongside William the Etheling by abandoning the white ship, claiming an attack of diarrhoea before it left harbour, and since then he had been one of Henry's favourites. He was a wealthy, powerful, charming, and courteous man in his early forties, and his wife Matilda's county of Boulogne was important to the English wool trade. His brother Henry of Blois, Bishop of Winchester, was a powerful voice in the English church, and commanded the support of many of his fellow bishops. But perhaps most important of all, Stephen pounced fast to claim the throne in a power vacuum. There was no one else at hand who could take the king's place and put an end to the great dangers threatening the kingdom, wrote the anonymous author of the Gesta Stefani, The Acts of Stephen. All this contrasted sharply with Matilda. The empress was pregnant with her third child in December 1135. After Henry's birth in 1133, a second son, Geoffrey, had been born in 1134. Her third son, William, would be born in July 1136 and unable to move as swiftly as her cousin Stephen. Geoffrey, as an Angevin, was the object of much suspicion in Normandy and England, and Matilda's reputation was apparently not much better. According to Henry of Huntingdon, the Empress was lifted up to an insufferable arrogance, and she alienated the hearts of almost everyone. Although both her two sons, the two-year-old Henry and one-year-old Geoffrey, could claim more impressive royal blood than Stephen, there was little chance that a toddler would be acclaimed as a twelfth-century king simply by virtue of birthright. Matilda and Geoffrey had been engaged in a violent dispute with Henry I in the years before he died, as they attempted to claim the Norman border castles that the old king had promised as his daughter's dowry. The most they could do now was move to claim the disputed fortresses, and bide their time while Stephen cemented his unlikely rule. Stephen did not find the practice of kingship as easy as its acquisition. He relied on a small group of friends for advice and assistance, and failed to impose himself on barons who resisted his authority. He lacked Henry's calculated ruthlessness and political intelligence, and managed to alienate men who ought to have been his biggest supporters. Within three years, Stephen's rule on both sides of the Channel had been severely rocked. From 1136, Geoffrey Plantagenet began to wage a war of conquest from Normandy's southern borders, which Stephen was ill-placed to resist. All the king's attention was focused on England, where he lost the support in quick succession of Matilda's half-brother Robert of Gloucester, the most powerful baron in the country, of his own brother Henry, the Bishop of Winchester, 
whom he passed over for promotion to the See of Canterbury, and of Roger, the Bishop of Salisbury, an experienced royal administrator whose followers and son were arrested in clear breach of Stephen's promise at his coronation not to molest the church or its bishops. Stephen's reign was, from the beginning, divisive. He was generous, but not even-handed in dispersing Henry I's carefully accumulated treasure. He lavished favours on friends like the twins Walleran and Robert de Beaumont at the expense of powerful established barons like Ranulf, Earl of Chester. The destabilising effects of his arbitrary rule were exacerbated by Stephen's ill-advised attacks on the professional government Henry I had constructed. He dismissed a number of prominent career administrators and attempted to run England through high-born military men appointed by virtue of their rank. If all this was highly disruptive, it was encouraging to Matilda. In 1138, Matilda's influential half-brother Robert Earl of Gloucester officially defected from Stephen's side. The following year, as Geoffrey Plantagenet continued his assaults on Normandy, Matilda appealed her case to Rome at the Second Lateran Council and invaded England. She allied herself with Gloucester and set up headquarters and a nascent alternative government in Bristol. A civil war had begun. Matilda attracted a small but significant coalition of disaffected barons, including Brian Fitzcount and Miles of Gloucester. Both were marcher lords, whose territorial bases lay in the wild borderlands between England and Wales. Miles had been a powerful official in the West Country during Matilda's father's reign. The effect of their defection was to split England in two— Miles launched attacks on royalist strongholds across England that Stephen was unable to crush, allowing Matilda's faction to grow in strength and confidence. Yet the Empress was nowhere near powerful enough to defeat her cousin outright. The result was a prolonged period of war. Each cousin claimed to be the rightful ruler of England, but neither could impress his authority over the whole realm. In 1141 Matilda won her first significant victory. In late 1140, King Stephen had offended Ranulf, Earl of Chester, by granting lands and castles that the latter coveted to his enemies. It had been enough to push him into armed opposition. Ranulf seized Lincoln Castle from a royal garrison, and in February 1141 Stephen was besieging the castle to attempt its recapture. Seizing his chance, Robert, Earl of Gloucester, marched troops to Lincoln and attacked the royal army. In the pitched battle that followed, Stephen's troops were routed, and the king was captured. This should have been Matilda's moment. She assumed the novel title of Lady of the English, and attempted to arrange a coronation in London. Stephen's brother, Henry, Bishop of Winchester, was by now a papal legate, and he threw his weight behind the empress. Many of England's major barons, unwilling to save a regime to which they had long stood in doubt, abandoned the king and took to their estates yet the Empress could not press home her advantage. She was opposed by spirited military defences organised under Stephen's wife, swiftly managed to fall out with the Bishop of Winchester, and offended most of the magnates whom she encountered with her arrogance and haughtiness. As summer approached, the citizens of London rose against her when she refused to give the heavily taxed city any relief from the financial contributions she demanded to support her rule and on June the 24th, 1141, they chased her out of the city. With her campaign now in disarray, Matilda tried to besiege Henry, Bishop of Winchester, in his diocesan seat. In a disastrous battle, Robert, Earl of Gloucester, was captured. In order to free her half-brother, Matilda had no option but to arrange a prisoner swap. She released King Stephen. Her brief victory, which had lasted just under eight months, was undone. By the fall of 1142, Matilda had been chased by Stephen's forces all the way to Oxford, and by late November she was besieged in her castle, with hope draining away. Far away across the Channel, her husband was pushing on with a highly successful conquest of Normandy. Robert, Earl of Gloucester, failed to persuade him to divert from the task to come rescue his beleaguered wife— the best Geoffrey would do was send three hundred knights and their nine-year-old son, Henry. As Christmas approached, Matilda was growing desperate. 
Rather than wait for her husband's nights, she placed her faith in her own resourcefulness. One snowy night she wrapped herself in a white cloak, slipped silently toward a postern door in the castle, crept out past the guards, and headed away toward the snowy fields. Her white camouflage, a ghostly cloak against the dark skyline, allowed her to trudge the eight miles or so to Abingdon without being captured. She walked the frozen landscape ready at any moment for the crunch of hooves in the snow to announce a search party sent to capture her, but it did not come. At Abingdon she met with friends who helped her on to the safety of the West Country. She was saved, and with her the fight for the Kingdom of England lived on. This famous moment in the war was both providential for Matilda and disastrous for the realm of England. Now reinforced by fresh troops and encouraged by the near-miraculous escape of his half-sister, Robert of Gloucester led the fight against Stephen's rule. But once again the war lapsed into violent stalemate. Stephen held the crown, but he remained a weak king who could not command the loyalty of his Anglo-Norman barons. Matilda was more powerful than ever, but after the debacle of 1141 she was discredited in too many eyes to have any hope of conquest in her own name. The only decisive action was taking place in Normandy, where Geoffrey Plantagenet was rapidly occupying a duchy that Stephen had visited only once during his whole reign. By 1144 Geoffrey had captured Rouen and been recognised as Duke of Normandy, forcing those barons whose property bestrode the channel into the impossible position of having to acknowledge two lords for the same estates. Both England and, to a lesser degree, Normandy remained crippled by conflict. From 1142 England was firmly split between two courts, one under Stephen, nominally at Westminster and Winchester, and the other with Matilda, who ruled from Devizes in the south-west. The rule of law dissolved, with it went public order. The country, wrote the chronicler William of Newborough, was mutilated. With no adequate king in the north, King David I of Scotland ruled Westmoreland, Cumberland, and Northumberland. England, which under Henry I had been wealthy, well-governed, and stoutly defended at its borders, had now become a patchwork of competing fiefdoms of authority and power. It was as if, wrote the author of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, Christ and his saints were asleep. Stephen and Matilda both saw themselves as the lawful successor of Henry I, and set up official governments accordingly. They had their own mints, courts, systems of patronage, and diplomatic machinery. But there could not be two governments. Neither could be secure or guarantee that its writ would run. Hence no subject could be fully confident in the rule of law. As in any state without a single central source of undisputed authority, violent spoliation among the magnates exploded. Flemish mercenaries garrisoned castles and newly fortified houses the length and breadth of the country. Forced labour was exacted to help arm the countryside. General violence escalated as individual landholders turned to private defence of their property. The air ran dark with the smoke from burning crops, and people suffered intolerable misery at the hands of marauding foreign soldiers. The chronicles from the time are full of records of the bleak days that accompanied the war. The author of the Gesta Stefani recorded one example. The king set himself to lay waste that fair and delightful district so full of good things round Salisbury. They took and plundered everything they came upon, set fire to houses and churches, and what was a more cruel and brutal sight, fired the crops that had been reaped and stacked all over the fields, consumed and brought to nothing everything edible they found. They raged with this bestial cruelty, especially round Marlborough. They showed it very terribly round devises, and they had in mind to do the same to their adversaries all over England. Eventually, in 1148, Matilda left England. It may seem strange that she left a fight in which she had invested so much of her life, but after the decade she had spent leading the Plantagenet cause, her work was done. Her children, Henry and his two younger brothers, Geoffrey and William, were growing up across the Channel. Matilda aimed to live out the remaining years of her life in comfortable retirement at the priory of Notre-Dame-du-Pré, a cell of the Abbey of Bec at Quevilly, where across the Seine she could visit Rouen, 
the Norman capital that Orderic Vitalis described as a fair city set among murmuring streams and smiling meadows, strongly encircled by walls and ramparts and battlements. The city owed her much, for her grim efforts to distract King Stephen on the English front had allowed Geoffrey Plantagenet to capture it. Now she intended to enjoy the view. But England was not forgotten. Her eldest son was approaching his sixteenth birthday. It was time for him to take up the struggle, time for Henry Fitzempress to try his hand at conquest. Ambition Henry Fitzempress landed on the shores of Devon on April 13, 1149. It was his third visit to the fractured realm that he would have heard his mother tell him was his by birthright. He had seen the country in its bleakest hour in 1142, before Matilda's great escape from the snowy wastes of Oxford, and had subsequently stayed under the tutelage of his uncle Robert Earl of Gloucester, as England settled into its vicious stalemate. Henry spent fifteen months studying in Bristol, meeting the famous astronomer, mathematician, and scholastic philosopher Adelard of Bath, who dedicated to the young man a treatise on the astrolabe. Then from 1144, for reasons as much of safety as of political pragmatism, Henry had returned to his father to help him secure his position as Duke of Normandy. Now, on the verge of manhood, and burning with ambition, he was returning to England to claim his birthright. Henry was a strange-looking young man, who could switch in seconds from bluff good-humour to fierce anger. From his father he had inherited his auburn complexion and tireless energy, from his maternal grandfather a powerful domineering streak and a nose for an opportunity. Gerald of Wales left a vivid description of Henry later in life. He was a man of reddish freckled complexion, with a large round head, grey eyes that glowed fiercely and grew bloodshot in anger, a fiery countenance, and a harsh cracked voice. His neck was thrust forward slightly from his shoulders, his chest was broad and square, his arms strong and powerful. His body was stocky, with a pronounced tendency toward fatness, due to nature rather than self-indulgence, which he tempered with exercise. For in eating and drinking he was moderate and sparing. From the earliest age Henry was conspicuously brave, albeit rather reckless. When he made his second visit to England in 1147, it had been not to study but to fight. Although he was only thirteen, he had managed to hire a small band of mercenaries to accompany him across the Channel, where he attempted to assist his mother's war effort. The arrival of this wild teenager had briefly terrified England. Rumours spread that he had come with thousands of troops and boundless treasure. The truth had been closer to farce. Henry the teenager had barely been able to afford to pay his hired soldiers, who deserted him within weeks of their arrival. Weakened by sloth and idleness, overcome by poverty and want, they abandoned the noble youth, wrote William of Newborough. Stephen's reaction to Henry's teenage invasion was more amused than intimidated. He paid off Henry's mercenaries and sent him packing back to Normandy. That the thirteen-year-old Henry had had the gall to attempt a solo invasion of England, however poorly executed, is testament to the time he had spent at his father's side on campaign in Normandy. Geoffrey Plantagenet had involved his son in government since at least 1144. Henry had seen how a long-term military campaign played out amid the complex, fractured politics of the French mainland. He knew that he was being groomed as Duke of Normandy, and it may also have been suggested to him that he would be Count of Anjou, too. Henry spent hours on horseback following his father around Anjou and Normandy, learning to gallop at what would have become legendary speed. In later years his legs were bowed from the shape of the ever-present saddle. Twelfth-century France was divided into loose and shifting territories that owed little or no allegiance to any central authority, ruled across large swaths by noblemen who were little more than warlords. As he watched his tenacious and cunning father grind his way through the conquest of Normandy, 
Henry would have learned that political survival was a game of forestalling shifts of power, managing volatile relations between one's friends and enemies, and appealing to the right allies at the right time in order to further one's territorial objectives. In such a bewildering business, only the most devious and adept players survived. In this game of feudal lordship, Henry knew that he had one huge advantage. He was the son of an empress, with a claim to the English throne. France contained many powerful dukes and counts, but there were only two kings, the King of England and the King of France. To be a major force on the continent, and to stand up to the new French king Louis VII, who had succeeded to the throne in 1137, Henry knew that he must be more than just another powerful count or duke. He was Henry, son of the daughter of King Henry I, and right heir of England and Normandy. When he arrived in England in 1149, Henry's first task was to establish himself as a credible successor to his mother's cause. It was not his natural home. He understood the English language, but he did not speak it. It was all very well having royal blood. Now he needed to secure the recognition of his peers. Here the long days in the saddle paid off, as Henry rode north to be invested with knighthood by his uncle, King David of Scotland. He was girded in Carlisle on Whit Sunday, 1149. Now, sporting the belt of knighthood, he decided to show England that he had the martial valour to match. On his way back south he attempted an attack on York. This was unsuccessful, and Henry had to flee to the Channel, harried all the way by royal attacks. The sixteen-year-old knight made his way to the southwest, relieved a siege of devises by Stephen's son Eustace, and slipped back to Normandy. If it was not an entirely fruitful mission, he had at least won over important allies and made his mark. In 1150, Geoffrey formally invested Henry as Duke of Normandy, a role he had already been affecting for some months. In August of the following year, Henry gave homage for Normandy to King Louis VII of France, a ceremonial declaration of his ducal right and dignity. Then in September, Geoffrey Plantagenet suddenly died. He was thirty-nine years old. According to John of Marmoutier, Geoffrey was returning from a royal council when he was taken, severely ill with a fever at Chateau du Loire. He collapsed on a couch. Then, looking into the future of his land and his people with the spirit of prophecy, he forbade Henry his heir to introduce the customs of Normandy or England into his own county, i.e. Anjou, nor the reverse. Then, the death of so great a prince having been foretold by a comet, his body returned from earth to heaven. It was an abrupt end to a highly eventful life. The eighteen-year-old Duke of Normandy still had far to go if he wanted to realize the ambitions of his parents. The fight would be hard, but the rewards it promised were almost beyond imagination. A Scandalous Wife On May 18, 1152, at the cathedral in Poitiers, Henry, Duke of Normandy, married Eleanor, Duchess of Aquitaine. Planned in haste and with the utmost secrecy, the ceremony was executed as quickly as possible. Like his father, Henry was marrying an older woman. Eleanor was twenty-eight years old, and he was a restless young soldier who had only just turned nineteen. His bride was almost impossibly glamorous, famous across Christendom for her unconventional beauty, her outspokenness, and her headstrong political views. Only two months earlier she had been Queen of France, the wife of Louis VII. Their marriage had been annulled on the ground of consanguinity after Eleanor had provided the king with two princesses, but no sons. Henry's marriage to Eleanor of Aquitaine was one of the greatest coups of his life. For an ambitious young player in European politics, there could have been no more valuable bride. Eleanor brought wealth, power, and vast lands. Her duchy of Aquitaine was a vital part of the territorial reach of the French crown, stretching down from the borders of Anjou to the Pyrenees. She was an experienced ruler and a wily political player. 
and the fact that she had recently been discarded by the French king only raised her value for a Duke of Normandy, intent on establishing his status as a preeminent French nobleman. Eleanor's life story was already extraordinary. She was born in 1124, the eldest daughter of William X, Duke of Aquitaine and Count of Poitou, a patron of the arts and an enthusiastic warrior, who alternated between quarrelling with the papacy and making pious submissions to ecclesiastical authority. Her grandfather was William IX, the troubadour duke, who was the greatest wit, poet, and songwriter of his age. He composed verse in the southern French language of Occitan, telling the stories of seduction, heroism, and courtly love that were part of the fabric of southern French life. The House of Aquitaine was formed in his image. William the Ninth died in 1126, shortly after his granddaughter Eleanor's birth. Eleven years later, Eleanor's father also died suddenly while on pilgrimage to Compostela. His death left a thirteen-year-old Eleanor sole heir to one of the greatest inheritances in Europe. Aquitaine was a large, sprawling, loosely governed territory that comprised more than a quarter of the territory of medieval France. It included the Lordship of Gascony, the cities of Bordeaux and Bayonne, the counties of Saint-Ange, Angoulême, Périgord, Limousin, Auvergne, and La Manche. The dukes of Aquitaine looked north via the county of Poitou and south to the Spanish peninsula, where they had links with Navarre and Barcelona. It was a warm, fertile country, which traded in wine and salt via the Gascon ports on the Atlantic coast, and had an important tourist industry, thanks to the fact that it controlled the pilgrimage roads to Compostela, as they converged on the few passes cutting through the Pyrenees. The duchy would provide a potentially huge source of wealth, power, and cultural influence to whoever could control it. Control came hard, however. Government sat very light in Aquitaine. Power and authority were subject to a patchwork of troublesome and rebellious lords, whose fealty to the duke was seldom more than nominal. It was obvious to everyone that this was no place for a thirteen-year-old girl to rule. King Louis VI of France moved swiftly, and three months after her father's death, on July the 25th, 1137, Eleanor was married to his eldest son, the seventeen-year-old Prince Louis, at the cathedral in Bordeaux. This union with the heir to the French crown brought Aquitaine under the protection of Paris. Then, just seven days after Eleanor's first marriage, her new father-in-law was dead. Eleanor became Queen of France. The feisty southern child queen quickly proved out of place in the frosty Parisian court. There was a marked difference between the cultures of the Ile-de-France and Aquitaine. Even the languages were different. The langue d'oeil of the north contrasted sharply with the langue d'oc spoken by Eleanor and her large group of attendants. Eleanor was a worldly southerner who both captivated and terrified her new husband. While Louis VII conducted himself with austere piety, Eleanor embraced the splendor of queenship. She and her entourage dressed and behaved extravagantly and enjoyed a rich palace life that shocked her husband's closest attendants. Louis VII wore a habit and followed a frugal diet. According to William of Newborough, Eleanor complained in later years that she had married a monk, not a king. From the start, the marriage was profoundly dysfunctional, both personally and politically. Eleanor was capable, as the famous French abbot Bernard of Clairvaux wrote, of taking a determined political stance. She pushed Louis into several unwise ventures, including a vicious war with the Count of Champagne, provoked when her younger sister Petronia had a rash fling with the Count of Vermandois. Very swiftly, Eleanor built a reputation for causing scandal and chaos. When she accompanied Louis on the Second Crusade in 1147, rumors flew up concerning almost every aspect of her participation. She was blamed, wrongly, for disastrous ambushes on the crusading forces, and accused, falsely, of conniving or sleeping with her uncle Prince Raymond of Toulouse, the ruler of Antioch. Later chroniclers even spread the rumour that she had had an affair with Saladin, and attempted to elope with him on a boat, 
an odd fantasy given that he was only ten at the time. On the way home from Jerusalem, Louis and Eleanor stopped at Tusculum to meet Pope Eugene III. He gave them marriage counselling and offered them a reconciliatory bed, draped with his own precious curtains. It did not work. Although Eleanor bore Louis two children, Marie, Countess of Champagne, was born in 1145, and Alex, Countess of Blois, in 1150, it was clear by the early 1150s that the marriage was untenable. Perhaps they could have continued had Eleanor produced a male heir, but she did not. By the time of the Christmas court of 1151-1152, held deep in Eleanor's territory at Limoges, it was an open secret that the royal marriage would soon follow the path of many others before them. On March 21, 1152, an assembly of French bishops declared that Louis and Eleanor were related within the prohibited bounds of consanguinity, and their marriage was declared void. Eleanor would retain her duchy of Aquitaine, and Louis, like every other Capet since Philip I, would have his marriage annulled. It is hard to believe that Eleanor felt anything but relief. This relief, however, would have been alloyed by the knowledge that she was as vulnerable at the age of twenty-eight as she had been on the day of her father's death. The unwed Duchess of Aquitaine was back on the marriage market with no shortage of bidders. In March 1152 she made a perilous journey through the Loire Valley from Beaugency to Poitiers, the principal seat of her duchy. Knowing that the countryside around her was fraught with danger, she moved with all possible haste. Already word was spreading that Eleanor was no longer the Queen of France. Kidnappers were said to be pursuing her from two directions. According to a chronicler from Tours, both Theobald V, Count of Blois, and Geoffrey Plantagenet the Younger, Henry's sixteen-year-old brother, were bent on waylaying Eleanor, hoping to abduct and force her into marriage. But a decade and a half spent at court in Paris had taught Eleanor a thing or two about political survival. She realized that marriage was inevitable and necessary, but was determined that it should be on her terms. So, as she rode hard for Poitiers, giving the slip to her would-be abductors, she was thinking of the one man who would best secure her future. Henry Plantagenet, Duke of Normandy and Count of Anjou and its neighboring counties of Maine and Touraine, was in Lisieux, near the coast of Normandy, preparing an invasion of England, where he aimed to claim the crown in his mother's name. Eleanor had met Henry the previous year, when he and his father had visited Paris for peace talks. It is possible that the unhappy queen and the ambitious would-be king had considered each other as potential future mates. Whether a formal agreement was made is unknown. On arrival in Poitou, Eleanor sent a message to Henry, asking him with all urgency to come and marry her. Henry wasted no time, cancelling all his plans for invading King Stephen's troubled realm. The duke indeed, allured by the nobility of that woman and by desire for the great honours belonging to her, impatient at all delay, took with him a few companions, hastened quickly over the long routes, and in little time obtained that marriage which he had long desired, wrote William of Newborough. So it was that Henry Plantagenet married Eleanor, Duchess of Aquitaine, in a low-key ceremony at the Cathedral of Notre-Dame-la-Grande in Poitiers on May 18, 1152. Their marriage ceremony was swift and discreet, but its aftershocks were no less massive. The big loser was Louis VII. While he could not have expected Eleanor to take any other course of action, he would have expected her future spouse, as vassal, and Eleanor, as ex-wife, to seek his permission. They did not, and it rankled ever after. As Henry of Huntingdon put it, Henry's marriage to Eleanor was, "...the cause and origin of great hatred and discord between the French king and the duke." Eleanor's marriage to Henry transformed the map of France at a stroke. Henry's control of Normandy, Anjou, Maine, and Touraine was now fused with the giant duchy of Aquitaine. One man now theoretically controlled virtually the entire western seaboard of the Kingdom of France and almost half the landed territory. In seeking an annulment of his marriage to Eleanor, Louis had made an understandable decision for the future of the French crown. 
In letting her fall into Henry Plantagenet's hands, he had committed an inexcusable blunder. To add to the French king's woes, within months of her speedy marriage, Eleanor was pregnant with a son, and Henry had revived his plans to conquer England. This not only made a mockery of Louis's inability to produce an heir with her, but also threatened to sunder his daughters from any claim to the Duchy of Aquitaine. A Plantagenet heir, who one day might conceivably rule Normandy, Anjou, and Aquitaine together, was on his way. Within two years that likely patrimony would grow to include the crown of England. This audiobook is continued on Disc 2. The Plantagenets by Dan Jones Continued Disc 2 Henry the Conqueror Malmesbury in Wiltshire was a wretched little town, as sorely treated as any in England during the agonies of the Civil War. Its walls and Mort Castle had been besieged at least three times during the Civil War, and its people brutalized and plundered for many years.